We at the FCC feel that democracy is all about protecting the rights of the ordinary citizen. Unregulated radio would result in programming of the lowest common denominator, the rule of the mob. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls. You see, I never planned it like this. Welcome back to Hooning Company. It's episode 52. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. 52 episodes. Now, if this were a weekly podcast, you'd be able to listen to us once a week for a year. But it's not. It's a monthly podcast. And April is the month who and Company usually try something a little different. So rather than chatting to a guest, Brent and I are going to try talking to, and this sounds crazy, one another. <laughs> This week, the Academy Awards hosted their 93rd ceremony, and it got us in the mood to talk movies. So Drew and I are each going to talk about three of our favorite films. But Fear Not is still a Doctor Who podcast. So for each film we talk about, we're going to pair it with a Doctor Who episode. And just so we don't drift too far from our regularly scheduled programming, I sat down with returning guest Eric Molinsky of Imaginary Worlds podcast to find out how he's handling his quarantine and what he thought of Series 12 in the most recent New Year's special. And all that's coming up right after this. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Brent, we're doing something different this month. That's right. Every April, we do something just a little different. It started by accident, and now it's become a tradition. So, Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Figured we'd talk about movies this time, because we both love movies, and we don't talk about them very often. It's true. I mean, I, well, we say we don't talk them pretty often, but it, it, I always feel like when I'm listening to an episode, a, a movie conversation usually sneaks in in one <laughs> form or another, because clearly... You know, television is a visual medium. Movies are a visual medium. It, it doesn't hurt to compare, especially a lot of Doctor Who seems to take its inspiration from films and vice versa sometimes. And, and so why not talk about them? Uh, Brent, I imagine that you are uh, an individual who really likes movies. Am I correct in that? You are. And I do have a top 10. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, do you... And you don't have to reveal what it is, but uh, if someone asks you, do you have a favorite movie? Do you have an answer for that? I do. See, I always go, well, what genre? Because uh, there are just too many movies to, to point out to a single favorite. Are we going to be talking about your absolute favorite movie today? 
Later on, we will. Yep. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, we are not going to be talking about my absolute favorites. Um, and there's a reason for that, and we'll, we'll get to that when we sort of get there. But um, I'll tell you what. Why don't you start us off with, with the first film? Okay. The first movie we'll be talking about today is Apocalypse Now. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. <clears throat> Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. Follow it. Learn what you can along the way. When you find the colonel, infiltrate his team by <clears throat> whatever means available. And terminate the colonel's command. Terminate the colonel. He's out there operating without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. And he is still in the field commanding troops. Terminate with extreme prejudice. You understand, Captain, that this mission does not exist nor will it ever exist. Came out in 1979, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, of all the movies that I'll be talking about today, uh, all of them are in my top five. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, and um, I just love this movie. This one has such a, a mood to it. And the music, the directions, the cinematography, the acting, everything works. I just think it's perfect. How old were you uh, when you first saw it? Do you know? Do you remember seeing it for the first time? I think I was maybe a teenager, mm-hmm. maybe late teens. I rented it from the video store, and I don't think I liked it mm-hmm. back then. And then as I got older, I happened to catch it on, uh, on television one day, and it got sucked in. And I thought, really, I need to go watch the uncut version of this. And and I really liked it. And then last, was I guess it was about a year and a half ago, just before COVID struck and all the movie theaters shut down and everything, um, the local Alamo Drafthouse was showing it in 4K. And there's three different versions of this movie, by the way. And they had released the final cut in 4K. And so I finally got to see it on the big screen. And to me, favorite movies are movies where obviously you really love it. But in certain situations during your life, during the day or whatever, something will remind you of it. And you'll think of it and you'll, oh man, I need to see that again. (laughs) (laughs) And, And to me... That's what a favorite movie has to do to you. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good point. I, I folks were like, well, you know, a favorite movie. You know, if you're stuck on an island, you only get one one movie to watch over and over again. You go with your favorite. And I don't always know if that's always correct because I feel like sometimes certain films are so good and so powerful, and they evoke a certain emotion within you that watching them over and over again seems to diminish that feeling. Uh, and so he, two of my top two favorite films are ones that I can't watch, but once a year, maybe sometimes once every two years. Uh, but I think about them constantly and I really like that, that reminder of it. Of course, mm-hmm. there's also different types of films. Sometimes, you know, you can watch a screwball comedy 
more often than you can something like this epic war drama. Uh, <laughs> I was actually talking with my father about this film today, and he's like, yeah, I've, I've seen it a couple of times, but I was in Vietnam, and I cannot watch this film anymore. Oh, I'm and, sure. Yeah, yeah, and he's just like, you know, it's a it's a very, very different experience uh, for me. So, yeah, I get that. Um, The cast is amazing in this film. Um, Martin Sheen, uh, to me, one of his best roles, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Marlon Brando, of course, but he's only in the end of the movie. Um, Dennis Hopper is in there, who's also near the end. Right. Robert Duvall, who's my dad's favorite actor. Uh, Frederick Forrest, who looks like my dad. <laughs> uh, a very young Scott Glenn. He's almost unrecognizable. Um and Harrison Ford, right around the time he did Star Wars. Right, yeah. And, and also a very young Lawrence Fishburne, who... That's true. Yeah, he was so young, I didn't even recognize him the last time I saw this yeah, movie. Yeah, he's a like, baby. Yeah, I saw his name in the credits, and I was like, where was he in this movie? I don't remember him. And then I saw his name, and I was like, oh my God, there's no way that was him. But it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the first time I saw this, um, I don't know if we've ever discussed that at one point in time I was an aspiring film student, and um, a lot of the jobs that I took as an early teen were working in video stores. And so my goal would be to watch one to five videos a day, depending on how long my shift was, to kind of fill out the void so I could I could say, yes, I've seen that film and I want to hear my thoughts on it. And um, this is one that I started watching in the in the video store and it just didn't work. It's just you know, helping customers with all of this going on. You, you can't really get into it. I remember taking it and watching it with a friend of mine. And, and then immediately after getting the documentary Hearts of Darkness, and um, I remember thinking that the the film documentary of the making of the film was uh, I think far superior it engaged me more and I think that's me as someone who was interested in about making films um, and that's the 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 kind of main uh, memory I have of this because I've only seen it one time um, I, I kind of rewatched bits and pieces to remind myself of it um, but I remember it being evoking some pretty powerful emotions and, and um, like you said great performances across the board great cinematography great action sequences lots of explosions um yeah. Brando being very Brando. Let me ask you this. When you think of Brando, if I say Marlon Brando, is this the part that you think of? Like what is the what is the Brando part that comes to mind when when you hear the name of Brando? This one. Um and weirdly, uh the island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> <laughs> I know most people are thinking, you know, some of his really older movies, but I haven't really seen a lot of those. Right. On the waterfront and such. Yeah, actually, right. <laughs> Moreau is mine. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, like, you know, Vito Corleone is such an iconic role, and that's probably the one I first saw, but I am a bad movie buff. Like, I like bad movies, and, and Moreau is such a terrible, horrible piece of garbage. Yeah. But uh, that sort of... I, I think I went through a Brando period around the same time where I just watched all of Brando's films because I, I didn't watch many of them early on, but... Um, yeah, it's a it's an intense film. Uh, I when you first told me we were watching that, I was like, "That's that's going to be a, a, an interesting thing to talk about." We probably could talk about it more. But one of the things that I'm I'm really quite excited about is finding out which Doctor Who episode you would pair with uh, Apocalypse Now and why. Brent, what did you choose? Well, one of the things I love about this movie is that the whole film is a journey. 
Uh, Willard's on this mission to take out Kurtz because Kurtz went deep in the village and took over and went crazy and the natives treat him like a god and he's got his own cult and Willard has this dilemma of, you know, I'm a soldier and I have to kill people, but can I really murder one of my own? You know, he slowly descends into madness, uh, blah, blah. But it's a journey. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a start to finish journey. And it made me think of Marco Polo. Hmm. And we're, you know, we're not really able to see Marco Polo almost at all. Right. Um, but I have seen the uh, reconstruction and I really like Marco Polo. And it's, it's also like a journey. Uh, like each episode is uh, a different place on their way to find Marco Polo. I think I can't remember. Uh, well, no, they're with Marco Polo. They're right? with Marco Polo and, and they are, they're Marco Polo fight. has taken the, the TARDIS on the caravan and they're taking it to, uh, uh, whoever the, the royal, whatever the royal term is. It's been a while since I have either listened to the audio or read the, the novelization. So I, I don't want to culturally, because it is supposed to be adhering to actual, the real world. I don't want to miss, uh, <laughs> mislabel the, the individual, but there is something about the educational aspect, but also they go into the scenario thinking they know who these individuals are. And as they go on this journey, those revelations change and the, their their views change too. So I think it's a very apt comparison and a good pairing for it. Yeah, I think it was the emperor maybe or something mm-hmm. like that they were looking for. And, and they finally get there in the end, although... Um, Marco Polo has a very different ending than Apocalypse Now, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Kurtz and the Emperor are very different characters. Like, very no one's playing different. chess uh, <laughs> and being happy about it. Because I really feel like, uh, just in the audios, you get Hartnell's doctor is uh, quite enamored with the, the the royalty, and they actually get along really well as opposed yeah. to... Yeah. Well, Drew, uh, it's your turn. All right. So, uh, what what's your first movie, Brent? I like weird stuff, dude. Um, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I really like weird, weird movies. And I, I for my first film, I have chosen possibly one of the weirdest, and it's one that, um, well, I chose 1974's Zardoz. You have a name. My name is Zed. Zed for Zardoz. I am an exterminator. The memories are simple heroics. There are no abstractions, you will notice. It is certainly very fragmented. The shock of entering the vortex could be responsible. Um, it's a John Borman film. It stars Sean Connery and Charlotte Rampling. And... Um, I mean, it's about as out there as you can get. This is one of those films where... I was eight years old when I saw it for the first time. Absolutely, this is not a film for eight-year-olds, but there's something about it that kind of stuck with me. And as I watched it over the years, I got more and more out of it. So it stopped. You know, I bought, I watched it because it was a science fiction film starring James Bond. Like mm-hmm. that's that's all you need to know for for to start it. Uh, but as the years have gone on, I've really begun to appreciate it for many other aspects of the film but i know that you watched this recently so i have to ask what did you think of zardoz <laughs> i had never seen it before right and i wasn't quite sure what to expect because i've heard about this movie for a long time and 
All I heard was that Sean Connery runs around the red diaper for the whole film and mm-hmm. that it was sci-fi. So uh, I saw a bit of the trailer first, and I thought, man, this film is going to be wackadoodle crazy. Yes. And uh, actually watching it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Uh, in fact, there were parts that I liked a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea that John Borman was part of this. He wrote it, produced it, directed it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's great with Excalibur and Deliverance and Emerald Forest. And all of his movies are very cinematic, you know, really glorious locations and uh, cinematography. And and that was here too. But um, I have to admit, I was confused as hell. And I was paying attention. and Because uh, there's a part of me that's always determined to understand movies or shows that people say are impossible to understand. Yeah. So I was trying, I was trying really hard. Um, but I didn't fully understand it until it was over and I read the synopsis. Sure. But uh, all of that aside, I... I I did like it, and I, although part of me felt like I should have been high or drunk watching this, sure. <laughs> kind of like The Wall or uh, I don't want to say that Wars. helps, but it, it, it does definitely changes the experience. <laughs> Just because it's so visual, and mm-hmm. uh, some of the sequencers are really uh, dreamlike, mm-hmm. and yeah, you had people talking backwards, eating green bread, uh, a village of senile old people, uh, but I, I think... To me, my favorite part was the when Zet has the realization of what's going on when he finds a certain book. <laughs> that blew me away. And I texted you when I saw that part. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I, I put it's such a smile on my face. Yeah. Um, so here's just a little bit of background. I, I have and will forever uh, – talk about this so you know ever want to talk about zardoz then we don't have uh you know a podcast to do i'm happy to do it so borman had just done deliverance and he it was such a success commercially that they said you could do anything you want and, and borman said i want to do lord of the rings i want to do a live action lord of the rings and they're like great and working on the logistics of it they realized it was impossible to do based off of the just the budgetary restraints and such mm-hmm. but uh he got so into the idea of a fantasy realm uh, and the world building aspect, he thought, why don't I do my own world building? And so he wrote Zardoz, and and through the director's commentary and different articles I've read over the years, it talks about how like the the script evolved, and it was originally supposed to be a Burt Reynolds film. You know, they were going to do something together based off of their their time on Deliverance together. But mm-hmm. this is actually an American Irish because it's all filmed in Ireland in County Wicklow. But um, you know, this is a this is a film that is sort of quasi-intellectual, new-age science fiction that has a message that has com- been completely lost in the spectacle of it. And that's what I tell people when we go into watching Zardoz. I say two things. One, this is a film to be experienced, not really to be uh, understood. You kind of just go in and, and let yourself be a part of it. And I also say that, you know, uh, it's a bit rapey, so just prepare yourself for that. Um, yeah. Not in comparison to things that you see in modern film, it's not as bad, but it, you know, again, I should not have seen this as an eight year old, but, um, the, the brutality of humanity, uh, the message that he's trying to get across on that is it comes across in quite a lot of sexual assault, especially early on in the film. Um, mm-hmm. but it is a bonkers, 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 bonkers film. And I love it. Um, I watch it about two or three times a year, I think about it very often because it certain scenes and images kind of burn 
burn into your mind. Um, but it does. I will say that as I've watched it over the last 30 years, I definitely am getting, no boy, more than that, uh, 40 years. I, I definitely get a lot more out of it now. And in fact, what I've really started to enjoy doing is watching it with people. So who have never seen it before. So I'll like, actually I've watched it twice during the lockdown over zoom calls with screen share. Mm-hmm. Um, with friends who have never seen it before, and we've talked about it afterwards and had uh, Zardoz parties. So, uh, if awesome. you if you have never watched Zardoz and you feel intrigued, please let me know. We'll have a Zardoz party. Um, probably not. <laughs> Don't at me. Um, yeah, it's a it's a neat film. So, um, when you when you suggested that we we watch films, that was the first film because I was like, well, he's never seen this. I gotta I gotta send it. But like, how do you pair <laughs> this with? Uh, Doctor Who. How do you how do you pair a movie that has a giant demonic floating head, and the technology people have advanced uh, so far that they don't even know where their technology comes? Oh, face of evil. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's perfect. It's face of evil, and instead of Zardoz, it's Zoanan, and um, yeah, it's basically it's sort of the same film, um, except that the Doctor comes in and the Doctor is is. Um, Arthur Frayne, you know, he's the one who has sort of set this into motion without realizing it. Of course, we mm-hmm. get our first introduction to Leela. Uh, we've got the Seva team. We've got a mad computer. All of this is directly in line with Zardoz. It's almost perfect. It's, in fact, it's, uh, I really love the thematic approach that you took to Perig, Apocalypse Now, and Marco Polo because you're right; it is about a journey, and it is about you know a journey through Asia. But this one, oh boy, I'd, I'm only pairing it because they're so incredibly similar, and I, I do really like Face of Evil. Uh, so yeah, there you yeah, go. I, I can totally see how this would fit with Face of Evil, uh, and you've got the Seven Team and the Tesh, mm-hmm. which were descendants of the original survey team and the technicians all from the same race. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and, and then, uh, Zardos, you have the brutals and the eternals mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very similar. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, face of evil came out in 77. So I'm, I mean, like I, I can't say for sure that they, they looked at Zardos and went, this is where we're getting our inspiration from. But considering that it's three years after Zardos is, uh, came out maybe I mean there's probably a good chance um, well this was around the time where Hinchcliffe was still on there and mm-hmm. he did a lot of uh, you know Brain of Morbius was basically Frankenstein yeah uh, that sort of thing like um, a lot of the stories were played off of of classic stories so maybe this did come from Zardoz I, I mean know. I wouldn't be surprised in fact you, you're pretty astute assumption there with the with Hinchcliffe be, uh, not a astute assumption you clearly know what you're talking about but um, <laughs> when you first suggested this every single one of my favorite films has a direct Tom Baker um, pairing and I I said I can't do all Tom Baker that doesn't make any sense um, so this is the only one that I, I kept but um, you know gun to my head favorite film is is John Carpenter's The Thing, um, and there is a a Tom Baker story that that involves it, and, and I'm yep. I'm always get it wrong. Is it Seeds of Doom? Doom. Okay, yep. <laughs> as opposed to Seeds of Death. <laughs> yeah, I mean the first two episodes, and it, it's really not John Carpenter's The Thing clearly because that hadn't come out yet at the time, but it's is Howard Hawks. Um, the thing from another world with who really stresses the vegetable aspect of the the creature at that point in time. But uh, yeah, um, I'll cut this part out, but I, I'll tell you uh, 
a way that I could I remember Seeds of Death versus Seeds of Doom. Mm. If you think of death and doom uh, alphabetically, there you go. Death comes first, so the second doctor comes first. Gotcha, man. Yeah, keep that in, and yeah. now you know, and knowing is half the battle. <laughs> Ding! The more you know. Well, my next film is my very favorite film of all time called The Crow. If the people we love are stolen from us, the way to have them live on is to never stop loving them. Buildings burn, people die, but real love is forever. And it came out in 1994. Different things were going on. I was a teenager. You know, I just graduated high school. I was out and about doing all kinds of things. So I missed it on the theatrical run. And I rented the film on VHS when it came out. And I remember the first night I watched it, I watched it in my room. The lights were out, which is not something I normally do. Uh, And I watched the whole film beginning to end. And I loved it so much that I backed it up, rewound the tape, (laughs) called my mom in there and said, you got to see this. It's awesome. And then watched it again twice in a row. Nice. Which never happens. So uh, I I really, really loved it. Uh, It's the mood. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, the music, the direction, the way the characters are instantly relatable and you really like them. Um, there was also this mystique at the time of Brandon Lee's death and, right. and you know, when did it happen in the film and, and all that surrounded it. Um, it brought a really eerie element to it, especially since he plays someone coming back from the dead. Um, and I'm not really sure a studio would go through with that these days. Yeah, that's certainly tricky. Um, usually they'll either write those scenes out um but they also, he, you know, just behind the curtain, he passed away really towards the very end of filming. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and for those who don't know, um, they were sh- filming a scene in which someone fired a blank at Brandon Lee and the person, the prop guy, hadn't cleaned it properly. And so a piece of shrapnel, when the blank was fired, flew out and, and lodged in his lung or heart i can't remember he did not die instantly he did die on the set with everybody watching it was pretty horrific um and he was around the same age that his father of course bruce lee um passed away too and so it was considered the lee curse and uh they yeah there was a big big deal with that um i have to Um, ask you brent okay did you read the comic book no um i Bought a graphic novel, maybe a year or so later. I I don't even know if I still have it. <laughs> oh, did you read it? Oh yeah. Listen, so James O'Barr's The Crow, um, years before it was made into a movie. It was an interesting thing too. Again, you know, I used to be a film student, but I'm always going to be a comic student. Um, there was a time where you know Marvel couldn't get a movie made, um, not not successfully, not well. There weren't any good Marvel films. And uh, DC sort of cornered the market on their superheroes with both Superman and Batman. And there's some stunkers that came out as well. But um, around the late 80s, early 90s, the studio started turning to the independent comics. So you have films like The Crow and The Mask. Um, uh, later on, things like Hellboy, where you didn't have generations upon generations of individuals who kind of had these preconceptions of what a comic movie should be like. And they could get away and play around with these ideas. And so... Mm-hmm. I had read The Crow when it first came out. 
It was a you know dark, brooding, gothy kind of comic. I was a dark, brooding, very nerdy, goofy kind of kid. Um, but I followed this film in like, I don't know, Starlog magazines or whatever. Like I was learning about filming updates. I knew about it. But when he died, I thought they were going to cancel it. And yeah. I was really super bummed by it. I wouldn't saw it opening night in the theaters. When when I saw, and this is a really important, like the most important part about this movie. I know that's your favorite movie, but we need to talk about the soundtrack of this film. Oh, yeah. When the soundtrack first came out, um, I bought it immediately. And that's all I listened to probably for a year was that soundtrack. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that one's, that's coming out in 1994. I had really gotten into movie soundtracks a couple of years before. We'll talk about that with my second film. Um, but yeah, it, it's an amazing soundtrack. Uh, it is. And uh, I don't know, was that was that part of the mystique or did you discover the soundtrack later? Well, it was, I had not heard, I may have, may have heard one or two, I'm not sure, but uh, I didn't really notice the music in this until I was actually watching the film. And it, it really... Um, it's part of the film. Mm-hmm. And so after that, I was like, I have to have that soundtrack and I got it. Um, another thing I loved about this is the the rest of the cast. They're great and believable, especially Ernie Hudson playing a cop. Really good. He does that well. Yeah. And uh, the little girl who plays Sarah and mm-hmm. the gang members. Uh, and just little character touches like Ernie Hudson sitting at home relaxing in his underwear and he still has his police hat on. <laughs> <laughs> Or, uh, or Sarah saying, you know, hot dogs make you fart big time. Or, you know, other good character moments. The one that really grabs me is, like, Eric being so angry and driven to get these guys back for killing his wife and then turns on a dime when he sees her ghost and knows it's time to be with her again. Right. You just really feel his heartache and his happiness at the same time, and the score playing around that is just perfect. So... I'm not ashamed to say I cry at that ending scene almost every time I watch it. So uh, I love it, man. Just, just the perfect movie. I love it. And like we mentioned before, you know, a good film evokes an emotion within you, and it doesn't yeah. have to always be tears or, or joy. You know, like some people like being sad. It's it's it's. <laughs> it can't rain all the it's time. Ha- it's happy for deep people. Uh, you're right, and it can't <laughs> rain all the time, Jane right. Seabury. So I just want to go over this. This is okay. I'm not not every 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 track, but like we have the Cure, Machines of Loving Grace, Stone Pebble Pilots, Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine, The Violent Femmes, Henry Rollins, uh, Helmet, Pantera, uh, My Life with a Thrill, Kill Cult, Jesus, Mary Chain, Medicine, Jane Seabury. I mean, that's a solid. You know, back before you could get your music digitally, that was a really good mix. Uh, back yeah. when I was a DJ, you know, you could just essentially hit play on this and you were doing pretty good for a while. I think it really, um, I think it did really well. It was like the top of the Billboard 200 albums chart. Uh, I know it sold a lot of copies. It's a, it's a triple platinum album. Uh, oh, wow. It was really, I didn't know that. yeah, it was a good one. I saw this film, like I said, the, the, the night it came out and I was promptly in a car accident mm-hmm. and then, um, uh, maybe a couple of weeks later, I went and saw it at the theater again and was promptly rear-ended by somebody. Wow. Um, and so I have not, Brent, I have not seen this film again since uh, 1994 because I am afraid to go driving afterwards. <laughs> because Someone could crash into your living room. <laughs> someone could crash into my living room. It is impossible. I, am a, I can be both a science nerd as an educator and a deeply superstitious individual. 
Um, and so I figured, uh, why risk it the third time? But I, right. I have seen bits and <laughs> I have watched bits and pieces of it without any kind of uh, uh, negative result. But I haven't watched it all the way through since. Um, did you watch any of the sequels or the TV show or any of that stuff? I bought the TV show last mm-hmm. year, and I've seen the first couple of episodes, and it's actually not bad. It's, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, the first, the first episode is like a remake of the movie, and they do a couple of things different, and then they go on from there. It's like a weekly series, and of course, everybody's been recast. Sure. Uh, the movies, though, I saw the second one, and it was so boring. <laughs> The third one was pretty good. I did yeah. like the third one. Eric Mabius is in there. The fourth one was so bad. It was so horrible. I think I got maybe 20 minutes in and had to turn it off. It was such a shame. Uh, and, I, and I've heard so much talk about a remake. Uh, the recent one was Jason Momoa, but that's gone too. So I don't know that they'll ever make one. I don't know that they should make one, really. Well, they will. I mean, the beautiful thing about The Crow, not the original graphic novel is sort of what the the movie is based off of, but there are later stories where, you know, it's a revenant character, someone who's back from the dead for revenge. You don't have to be the same. You don't have to be Eric, right? So it's Eric Draven, right? Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's, I think it's doable, but I think you have to have the same kind of chemistry. So- before we go on too far about this, because boy, we start talking about movie soundtracks, uh, I can get <laughs> chatting. What did you pair this with? So what I've paired it with, Doctor Who wise, took me a while to think about this, mm-hmm. but State of Decay. Oh, why? You've got your elements of goth. Mm-hmm. You got your undead people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, creepy music, which to me is one of the best soundtracks of classic Who, and it's uh, from Patty Kingsland. Um. It's a creepy story about vampires and blood, which has nothing at all to do with the crow, but it does have a bit of the same vibe. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so that's what I picked, State of Decay. That's uh, that's a good one. I like that. It's interesting, too, because I was just thinking, you know, State of Decay might have worked for Apocalypse Now, too. Uh, when you start talking about individuals who have, who've lived on and kind of taken on godlike proportions. Um, mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've watched State of Decay, and I, I'll, I'll be honest, I've only watched it the one time when I was doing my my watch through um i don't watch a rewatch a lot of adric things but that was i feel like that was supposed to be adric's real strong episode because he plays the vampires no i can't remember does he does he pretend he's in league with them or does he actually kind he of pretends he's in league and I've, there's a lot of fans who think that oh adric he's so fickle and he's um doing this and doing and and i'm like no i think he's really playing these people and then mm-hmm. at the end he says oh yeah yeah that's what i was doing <laughs> so <laughs> no i like it again you got your nice theme i think i think uh i think you're doing a better job with the pairing uh than than i am i'm a little too literal uh as we shall see with well my next selection unless there's anything else you want to add to about uh state of decay or uh, the crow no um i want to hear what you're What's your next one is? Brent, um, when I tell you that this movie changed my life, I I am being very, very serious. Um, this film came out in 1990. Um, I think you and I probably had very similar reactions. Um, uh, and this was my favorite film for the longest time. 
I don't think it's a particularly great film, but it means the world to me. And that is 1990's Pump Up the Volume, starring Christian Slater. Consider the life of a teenager. Huh? You have parents and teachers telling you what to do. You have movies, magazines, and TV telling you what to do. But you know what you have to do. Huh? Your job, your purpose is to get accepted, get a cute girlfriend, to think up something great to do for the rest of your life. What if you're confused and can't imagine a career? What if you're funny looking you can't get a girlfriend? You see, no one wants to hear it. But the terrible secret is that being young is sometimes less fun than being dead. Uh, about a small town, a kind of tightly wound small town, and Christian Slater's character moves into the town Uh, As a new kid, he's shy, but at night, he becomes a pirate DJ and changes the town forever. (laughs) Um, Is the movie a great movie? It's not. It has a message, uh, and it really goes a long way to kind of explain my feelings of rebellion, which I had before I watched this one, but I was was pretty young when I saw this. Um, So I I wasn't even in really in high school yet. when I saw it, but why this movie changed my life, um, is because it introduced me to just an incredible amount of new music. I I grew up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They had rock stations and country stations, but the alt music scene took a while to get there. And when this soundtrack came out, I was visiting friends in Athens, Georgia and Athens, Georgia, for whom many of you probably know is a uh, a music hub of the South, actually Georgia in general, surprisingly is a great mm-hmm. place to to hear new bands. Um, Athens, of course, being the place where you have REM and uh, the B 52s, um, not really alt music per se, though REM certainly has its moments, but uh, the soundtrack for pump up the volume introduced me to, Oh my goodness. Let's see. Uh, Leonard Cohen, yep. huge. Um, uh, and they, the soundtrack has, um, everybody knows, covered by Concrete Blonde, but it's got Ian yep. Neville, it's got Liquid Jesus. It's the first, uh, my first introduction to the Pixies, um, who are, as far as bands go, as opposed to individual performers, my favorite band. Peter Murphy, uh, talk about your goth scenes. Henry Rollins is in there. We got Dr. Dre and Above the Law, Soundgarden, Sonic Youth, Cowboy Junkies. Um, and there's even more music in the the actual proper movie that don't doesn't make it to the soundtrack but again this is another soundtrack that that did very well um when it went in sale and uh, there's just something about the idea of teen rebellion um being an outcast in the school that really hit very close to home for me um Mm -hmm. yeah i loved it Uh, did you see it when it came out i think i saw it um maybe a year later Mm -hmm. uh but I saw this when I was 18. I was working in a record store. And yeah, you're right. This soundtrack was a huge seller. Uh, we could hardly keep it in there. Um, it sold really big here. And it was a really big hit. The movie and the soundtrack. Uh, a lot of people liked um, both of those. Um, so yeah, you've got your angsty teen uh, creating a pirate radio show and venting about society and injustices of youth and unwittingly causing chaos. 
I mean, I think also wittingly causing chaos too, in in a certain sense. Yeah. Part of the crux of that film is he is speaking his mind and what he believes in, and then some people take his recommendations too far and, and too far, and, yeah. and, you know, for fatal results. And of course, he takes that personally, and and uh, the town uses that that issue. But you know, it, there's there's a lot of repression in that film, and there's a lot of kind of fighting back against that form of uh, conservative repressive society and um yeah i mean the people that are highlighted in that movie are very much the people that i wanted to be <laughs> and and eventually hung out with um but yeah it's it's kind of sad to choose a movie based entirely on its soundtrack because it, it is a good film but it really is the music and 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 don't get me wrong, I had fairly decent taste in music at the time. I was listening to Zeppelin and the Beatles and a lot of Weird oh, yeah. Al Yankovic. But <laughs> um, I got into this just before kind of, you know, the the Nirvana Pearl Jam craze of the, the Seattle music scene and the grunge scene. And, and I was like one of the few kids in my school who listened to this kind of stuff. And so when it became popular... It was the first and only time in my life where I was an actual popular high school student. It was very weird. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. bonkers. Uh, plus, you get an extremely young Seth Green with a mullet, so there's that. That's right. I, you know, And it was one of those things where that never – I think it was like years later, maybe a decade after I had watched it, um, I, I was re-watching it. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Is that – it's that Seth Green who's in it just yeah. for like the briefest of moments. Um, Samantha Mathis is in it, and of course, you know everyone who watched this show at that time, movie at the time, had a crush on Samantha Mathis. Oh yeah, it was just sort oh of, yeah, that was the thing to do, and rightly so. I <laughs> rightly listen. So. Christian Slater, how much did this affect us? I talked like Christian Slater for years after um, after this this episode came out, <laughs> this mm-hmm. movie came out. Um, you know, the kind of scratchy voice and, and uh, Jack Nicholson <laughs> and Christian Slater were in so many movies uh, that yeah. I liked that it just, I, I couldn't really, really help it. But, uh, and he's, uh, he's aged really well too. He's in Mr. Ro- well, he was in Mr. Robot and uh, he looks almost the same. Yeah. He's, uh, uh, uh he, he, perhaps he's a vampire. Um, he could be, <laughs> you know, when I was, um, getting ready to watch this last night, for some reason, I thought I remembered him locking himself into a room and the cops burst in and killed him in the end. And it wasn't, I, I don't know what movie that was I was thinking about. I, I don't know, but I'm writing it down and uh, I'm going <laughs> to see if I can figure it out. And if I forget about it, listeners, uh, if you can remember people shooting Christian Slater, uh, write in and let us know. It may not have been him. It was just a <laughs> DJ that had locked himself in a room. He's doing pirate radio and they just came in oh, and killed him. That was probably talk radio. Um, it could have been, yeah. With uh, what's his face? Well, speaking of DJs and getting shot, um, <laughs> we, I, I was like, okay, I, I know I want to talk about pump up the volume because right. you're a music guy. I'm a music guy. I really want to talk about the soundtrack more than anything. And I was like, how do I pair this? Like, by God, how do you pair this with Doctor Who? There's not a Doctor Who episode with a young rebellious DJ, but there is an episode that does have a DJ in it. And so my pairing for this is. Uh, a Colin Baker story. That's right. It's Revelation of the Daleks, um, where for some reason the the large structure that is uh, a mortuary has a, a in-house DJ for what all the dead people? 
who are there? Yeah. It's so bonkers. This story is so nuts. Um, and it's, you know, I was recently on Desert Island, who, uh, on the DWP, and uh, James was commenting that I have a tendency to like uh, non-traditional Doctor Who stories. And he's right, because this is another one that is such a bonkers thing. As far as the Sixth Doctor is concerned, he's this isn't even a Doctor Who story. Like, he's, like, for classic Who, he's barely in it. He has zero to do with the actual plot of the 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 show it really right. is like kind of a, a side i mean sayward wrote it i guess it feels like a pilot for a different kind of dalek themed show because mm-hmm. you've got so many different characters interacting the daleks in a way that i mean if you took the doctor out of this story i don't think it would change all that much though you do get that amazing blue outfit that colin baker looks much better in than his usual his usual fare uh yeah i i'm a fan of this story too and um it's one of my favorite i don't know if it's my absolute favorite colin baker story but it it's right up there one or two i've just i've always liked it it's it's dark Mm -hmm. it's really dark and you know i i tend to like darker things like that and and um i've always liked this story except for in this movie I mean, in this story, the DJ is very annoying. He is. Yeah. <laughs> and I know it's uh, what's it, Alexi Sale from yeah. The Young Ones. Yeah, he tries to be funny, and he is not. Yeah, he, he has this weird, almost like an American DJ personality that just doesn't translate as, as well. Um, right. But this is also uh, an episode directed by Graham Harper, who I think is arguably one of the best directors oh, yeah. of the classic series. I think this is my favorite Colin Baker story, um, even though, as I just said, it's not really a Colin Baker story, um, and that's part of it. Um, but I, I really like the characters who are not the Doctor in this one. And even even the turn with Davros is is pretty cool. I, I think the setup is it's you're like you said, it's dark, it's violent. Um, again, Sayward, that's that's was something that Sayward was really pushing, but um, not so. Uh, you know, like Attack of the Cybermen kind of violent. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this is a good one. I really I really dug it. Um, <laughs> and I was actually <laughs> so happy. I, I thought I was very chuffed when I, I came up with the connection between pairing this and Pump of the Volume. It I know it's, it is the, the longest stretch, but uh, what is your final film for this episode? Well, my final film is my second favorite of all time is The Breakfast Club. Nice. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. And you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case a princess and a criminal does that answer your question sincerely yours the breakfast club all of my favorite movies they have a perfect blend of music story relatable characters and he usually runs the gamut of emotions you know like humor sadness empathy so this is like that incredible acting um 
the writing from John Hughes, mm-hmm. who was like the king of the 80s. 100%. Uh, writing, yep. Uh, the music is fantastic. Awesome soundtrack, again. Wang Chung's on that soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, the actors are all fairly new at the time and went on to become big stars because of this. And the big climax where they're all sitting in a circle telling all their secrets was mostly improvised, mm-hmm. which is incredibly impressive given what they came up with. And the, and the um, and the youth of the actual actresses themselves. I know that only two of them were actual teenagers, but yeah. uh, but uh, they yeah some some chops. When did you first I, see this one? Were you uh, young when this one came out? I mean, did you see yeah. it when it first came out? I guess I didn't say. see it at the I didn't see it at the cinema. I saw it on VHS when it was out. So and I have seen this movie so many times. I lost count. It's got to be in the thirties or forties. It's so and this is a movie to me like. Apocalypse Now, you could probably watch once a year just because it's so heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, And The Crow, I watch no more than once a year, maybe once every two years because I kind of don't want it to lose any magic, you know? But Breakfast Club, I could watch all the time. I just love it. It's just one of those things I can just watch over and over. So I've seen it many, many times over the years. Um, I have VHS copy. I have a Laserdisc copy. I have, um, <laughs> I have the soundtrack on the CD and cassette. I have the uh, the DVD, the Blu-ray, and uh, I did want to say this for people that are fans of Breakfast Club: uh, the entire script was filmed, which hardly ever happens. So they had to edit out about an hour's worth of material. It's never turned up for years, yeah. and I think it was maybe two years ago. Um, there is a Criterion collection of this film that came out, um, and it has all of the cut footage on it. Wow. It's very cool. Um, you can tell why it got cut. You know, some of the scenes sort of drag on a bit, but Mm -hmm. it's really cool to see the same thing over and over and over for years, and then suddenly you finally get to see a bit more of that time. Barnes & Noble has it if you're in the U.S., um, but I'm sure you can find it online somewhere. So... I don't know if you'll be offended by this or not, Brent, but with the exception of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I didn't watch... Oh, and Home Alone. I don't think I watched a single John Hughes film uh, before the age of 16. Uh, And somewhere when I was like 18 or 19 years old, someone pointed out that I, I had no cultural reference for John Hughes, what are considered to be the true John Hughes films. Sort mm-hmm. of like Ferris Bueller's and, and, and Home Alone are sort of outliers in those because they don't really – Bueller's is kind of a teen experience, but it's a very different sort of teen experience than, say, 16 Candles and such. So we had a John Hughes weekend, and I, I watched basically everything, and um, I liked it fine. I liked it fine, but I think part of what you – you get out of this film is probably coming to it at a certain younger age. I will say this about the film. I do remember finding certain bits between Binder and Molly Ringwald's character very troubling. Um, and I think a lot of films that we watched that came out in the, well, I mean, up until the probably late nineties, uh, a little questionable as far as the, uh, the sexual assault. I, I don't mean to laugh when I say that, but like, I, I was reviewing 
the plot of it. And I just remember a couple of the shots of him under the desk and just going, my God, you could not get away with that today yeah. uh, without his character just being locked in handcuffs and, uh, <laughs> and rightfully so. But I got to say, I don't rem- I didn't remember originally having such a, a fond memory of this movie. And as I was rewatching kind of, um, reviews of it in the last couple of days i remember going this no this is actually a, a quite an interesting film as far as not being judged and stereotypes i think it actually pairs better with pump up the volume than it does with almost anything else it, it kind of fits yeah. into that category yeah um so i had a bit of a uh, bit of trouble trying to uh pair this with a doctor who episode um but i did think of one and uh it's midnight Really? Midnight, yeah. Okay, please tell me why. <laughs> it's probably a bit of a stretch. Kind of oh, like no, the I DJ. get it. Okay, no, go ahead. But, uh, it's several people from different backgrounds stuck together in a small space discussing feelings. <laughs> of course, there's no alien trying to kill the kids in detention, but... I mean, if that know, thing wasn't invisible, it might actually be a bull that had horns. Yeah, but there is a sense of being forced to be together in a very small space with very different types of people and trying to find a common ground. Um, However, there is an episode of a classroom of students in detention who are attacked by an alien, which is the detained episode of class. Right. I was actually going to say that you could actually, I think that counts. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that's my favorite episode of that series. Yeah. Same. uh, Also the favorite of friend of the show and former guest, Sophie Hopkins. Yeah. That's always yeah. fun to say. <laughs> it is, yeah. I, I like it. I like it. Oh my god, Brent! I never would have thought to have paired it with with Midnight, but what a what a good thematic pairing, and what a great episode. Yeah, that's my. It was up until um, up until Heaven Sent. That was my favorite episode of the modern series. It's one of those films that, um, sorry, it's one of those episodes. We're switching between uh, movies and TV. Um, it's one of those episodes that I I get into these moods and I'll put it on. And I love just having it in the background because even though visually there is a lot going on with, with especially Tenet's facial expressions, it really is a about sound. And uh, it's such a creepy episode. Uh, and the fact that Davies wrote it over a, like a long weekend angers me so much that someone could be that talented where they can just go "Eh, i think i'm gonna spit out uh, an episode of doctor who that could be performed on a theater and would be quite incredible yeah um it's just i just love this i've seen it so many times probably more than any other of the new series i've seen this episode several times and i guess technically um the breakfast club could be paired with Almost any base under siege mm-hmm. in Doctor Who, but for me, I, I think just Midnight fits it the best because you have so many different people, and they're not just shouting at a screen or trying to figure out, you know, what they're going to do. They're actually talking to each other, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you've got the, the the parents, and you've got the the uh, rebellious teenager, and you've got the scientist and his um, student. Right. Right. Yeah, and and then you've got the lonely lady in the back who hardly talks to anybody, mm-hmm. and uh, she was kind of like the uh, Ali Sheedy character. It's bad for audio, but if it wasn't, I would applaud you. 
Brent. Uh, well done. <laughs> I, had to, I do have to ask you this, though, before before we move on to my final pick. Um, based on the Breakfast Club characters, which one are you? Brian. Which Definitely is? Brian. <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely Ali Sheedy. I was, especially in high school. Definitely Ali Sheedy. <laughs> <laughs> I was Brian. I wanted to be Bender, but mm-hmm. I was Brian. Yeah. And I think maybe that's why that movie works so well is because a lot of people can see themselves in those characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine, too, that as you get older, uh, rewatching it, you get something completely new out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think one of the things that is is a common theme with all of our picks are are are, are the fact that is the fact that you could rewatch it and probably frequently have. I know that there isn't a single movie on this my list of 3 that I haven't seen less than 30 times. Um mainly because I I used to just put on a movie and have it playing uh, constantly. Um at least especially when I lived alone. All right. Uh I'm last and um uh, so my my next film is, I think, my favorite comedy. So of all, all the comedies I've ever seen, it's my favorite. But it's such an unusual comedy because it is also uh, a phil- a, just a kind of philosophical think piece as well as a comedy. And that is 1993's Bill Murray classic, Groundhog Day. I'm sorry? What was that again? I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think. Because you survived a car wreck? You folks ready to order? I didn't just survive a wreck. I wasn't just blown up yesterday. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender, I am an immortal. Special today is blueberry waffles. Why are you telling me this? Because I want you to believe in me. You're not a god. You can take my word for it. This is 12 years of Catholic school talking. I could come back if you're not ready. You know, this is it's so easy to pair this <laughs> with Doctor Who or any show that's involved time travel. Uh, and even though Groundhog Day is not the first film to kind of play around with repetition either of a day or a year or an hour or something along those lines. Um, I think pretty much all of us still call it a groundhog day effect when we see something like that um, Mm -hmm. in, in something. So this movie, I was a huge Bill Murray fan. I loved Ghostbusters, loved what about Bob? This is a, the heyday of uh, Bill Murray. And for him to choose this film, you know, he, he worked with Harold Ramis on this one for him to choose this film, uh, it's such kind of a weird thing because well, not it it feels weird for an audience member. It's not weird if you remember that he did things like Razor's Edge, where he likes to play around with with deeper stuff. Um, he he was a fairly intellectual guy, um, and his form of comedy didn't always pair well with the sort of uh deeper dramas that he was interested in doing. Mm-hmm. When I saw this film. I remember distinctly, I still have my tickets for this film. We were driving home, we're in Myrtle Beach, and I we hit a red light, and we're maybe like two or three miles from home, and I just turned to my mother and said, I'm going to get out and walk the rest of the way home. And she's like, cool. You know, it's the 90s. Uh, my mom's <laughs> very much one of those 80s parents. She's like, yeah, yeah go ahead. You know, and yeah. I'm 
let's see how old was like 13 at this time you know 16 at the, no yeah like 13 14 i just got out of the car and i walked along the beach and i just thought about this movie uh and i haven't stopped man i i love this film and i try to watch it every february 2nd for groundhog's day it doesn't always mm-hmm. work um i don't have cable but i know like certain channels just play it on repeat i think that's brilliant uh, this film feels so much like sort of a comedic treatise on Eastern philosophy and religion. Um, and I have had just wonderful, wonderful conversations with people about what it all means and how long he was there and, and who he was and, and uh, yeah, like w- what the outcome truly means and, and how we wish anybody, anybody, but Andy McDowell was in it. Um, <laughs> I'm nothing against her as a human being. I just, I don't think she was the strongest actress for the part i don't think they mesh well but i think every other aspect of it is just absolutely brilliant um yeah i love this film it makes me feel good and it makes me feel hopeful and it makes me think and i get emotional about it and uh i'm just i'm thinking about it now and i'm smiling um what do you think about this film um i well this was the only movie of yours that i didn't see this time around i've seen it before I saw it a long time ago, and um, I saw it. Um, I don't remember if I saw it at the cinema, but I did see it on VHS when it was out. And I know it set the bar for the repeating day movie trope. Oh, yeah. But I don't remember any details just because it's mm-hmm. been so long, but I do love Bill Murray and just about anything he's been in. And, um, yeah, Andy McDowell was a pretty big star at the time, but their chemistry in this wasn't the greatest. And and uh, honestly, uh, it's probably Bill Murray's fault. Um, I don't know much about the behind the scenes of this film. Um, I, I do know some things. I'm sure there's a. I think there's probably a ton of books written about it. Um, and by say a ton of books, at least one. But you know how many comedies get a, a, a think piece about it? But I'm sure there's probably some. Groundhog Day and philosophy and Groundhog Day and, and what it means and such. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm just like looking at the cover of the DVD right now and it you watch the trailer for it and it's supposed to, it's just kind of this dumb concept that's kind of like a, huh, but it's so much deeper than that. And um, I truly, truly love it. And there's really, <laughs> there's only one Doctor Who episode to to pair this with you've already uh, yeah. mentioned it uh, and of course yeah. that's heaven sent um and I, I i'm in agreement with you man i think it is one of the best episodes of doctor who hands down again it's very similar um in that it's not a traditional doctor who episode you've got a a, a one-hander where it's basically just capaldi and a, a you know a, a sheet that's stalking him in a tower but um the power of the script the acting of Capaldi and the directing of Rachel Talley. This is such a good, good film and I, and I, a good episode. And I think even without Groundhog Day, it's enjoyable. I, you know, maybe even Groundhog Day kind of uh, lessens that filming experience where you're sort of like, yeah, just like Groundhog Day. And, and you know, <laughs> it's, it don't mean to diminish it, but it's such, it's so good. Uh, I was at Long Island Who uh, the year this came out. And, um, the usually Long Island who happens. And then like the following week, it's Chicago TARDIS. Mm-hmm. And we got, uh, to watch as a group, cause this comes out in November, 
you get to watch an, an episode as it airs and we got sleep mm-hmm. no more and oh, chicago no. tardis got heaven sent and <laughs> just i can't really be mad at a convention but i i gotta say i can't imagine watching that for the first time with a group and being able to form coherent sentences or talk about anything other than an episode um it's so good it's so well put together i mean you can nitpick i mean come on just pick up the shovel and hit it uh but that's not the point right in the same way that like the emotional growth and the journey that bill murray goes through in groundhog day uh is very similar to this sort of self torture that capaldi's doctor goes through in, in heaven send as he allows himself to go through this process for billions of years um yeah it's a powerful episode it is uh you've got the repeating day for mm-hmm. several thousand years and it's my favorite modern doctor's magnum opus like mm-hmm. he is this is his best and i would i would dare say stephen moffat's best work with a brilliant direction from rachel talalay who i personally think is the best director the show's ever had i'm so yeah, i'm not gonna argue with you man you've got the makings of a perfect storm here and certainly delivers yeah yeah hundred percent. Um, and, and I actually think that hell bent, even though it's just like any kind of typical Moffat two-parter, it, it's a, some vastly different mm-hmm. story. It's not bad. I still enjoy it, but right. I think you'd like that story a lot more if you hadn't just watched heaven sent. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause it's, <laughs> where do you go from there? And I will say this too, about both of those, I think it's the best, uh, finale of Capaldi's run, uh, two-parter. Um, I'm not a not huge fan of the other two, but this one, oh, it's so good. What a, and I think you're right too. I think if you, if you had to choose one episode for each doctor, uh, I think a lot of fans probably would choose this one for Capaldi because he, it, it certainly showcases his talents as an actor. <laughs> Hey folks, this is Drew. We're not done with you yet. Eric Malinsky from the Imaginary Worlds podcast has joined us for a quick conversation regarding, oh, what his thoughts of the quarantine, Doctor Who Series 12, and the New Year's Day episode. Uh, So here they are. Doctor Who. So first thing, one of the things is just, one, it's been a year and a half. So it's been since December of 2019 since we spoke with you last. And I think at that point in time, you had caught up on your, your Doctor Who watch. You think you'd finished most of... Whitaker's first season and and you dipped into the big finish audiobooks and seemed to be enjoying those oh yeah um so they hadn't aired so it was january 2020 when they aired that dalek episode yes january oh, 2020 yeah yeah so that then ties into this one um pro- yeah yeah um, so there's the i can't even remember Resol- resolution resolution of the daleks was the one prior to uh this most recent series 12 and then we finished it up with with Revolution. I think the I think the only thing that had come out that we talked about this on the last time, we had gotten a trailer, a really early teaser trailer for series twelve, but that was it. Okay. That we hadn't that hasn't aired since then. But mm. um, one of the things that we've been doing for the last year is just before we chat with anybody, how's your lockdown been? How have you been holding up? Yeah, it's uh it's going fine. I mean it's um I mean, you know, it's funny because I had this whole thing set up 
because, you know, I lost my studio at Panoply a couple of years ago, so I invested in all this stuff. I was recording at home anyway. The only thing is I used to have this cubicle I used to go to that I can't go to anymore. So the work itself is the same. You know, it's funny. I know a lot of people have had trouble with like dealing with work and the pandemic and all that. I think one of my problems is I'm too much of a workaholic. I, I get way too wrapped up in my work and in the podcast and I need to live a little. And so in a weird way, the pandemic has enabled all my worst instincts to basically oh. just live here all the time. Mr. Podcast Man 24-7. It's like, well, you know, go, you know, have a life. What am I going to do? Nothing. Go back to the office. <laughs> Keep working on right, your podcast. Right. <laughs> what are you going to do anyway? So um, so in that sense, it's like uh, it's, it's the thought of like, you know, venturing out and actually having a life again. It's just like, oh, right. That's the part that's uh, I need to work on. After after over a year of this, too, the idea of normalcy is both hopeful and a little terrifying because, you know, I've really gotten used to wearing pajamas. Um, I've gotten used to not almost all the time. never leaving the house for a week. Right. Yeah. I feel like a house yeah. cat. Let me ask you this. With, with all the time that you spend at home, did you find that you have been watching a lot of TV movies and such? So the, one, the show, my favorite show that I discovered in the pandemic was Call My Agent which is a French show about, it's on Netflix, and uh, it's about agents in um, in uh, in Paris, um, like movie star agents. And all the French movie stars played themselves, and I know probably like two French movie stars, so I didn't even know like many, I didn't even get many of the jokes um, about right, sure. the reputation of these actors. But I think the thing that I find is so fun about it is that I've seen a million behind the scenes Hollywood, you know, kind of stuff. Right, And sure. so a behind the scenes French film industry is really interesting because the movies they're making are really highbrow and really artsy and pretentious. And they're kind of even making fun of that. But then the behavior of the people behind the scenes is as lowbrow as you can imagine. <laughs> and like they're all motivated by the most base instincts possible. You know, while trying to make this, and it's funny because I was saying like to my wife, even though the the, sh the show is supposed to be like an homage to French film, it makes me less interested than ever in watching French films. But I really want to find more French TV shows because <laughs> this was so That's... much fun. I don't think I can tell you a single French television show that I've watched. I'd never I even heard of any until this show came out. Mm -hmm. And apparently there aren't a lot of great French shows because I was reading like in France, they were pretty shocked this became a worldwide hit uh, because- hmm. They're like, there, there are no good French TV shows. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about Doctor Who, though. Okay, so what did you think of Series 12? Okay, so I remember we were talking about Series 11. Yes. You know, I was breaking down how I felt about, like, love Jodie Whittaker, mm -hmm. love everything about her. Didn't know what to do with Three Companions, and the villains were, were crap. Yes. Uh, I felt like the villain problem was solved in the last season. Love the master, or as they call him on, on Twitter, Hot Camp Master. Um, <laughs> I lo uh, Lone Cybermen, like they made the Cybermen scary, which they have not been scary in a long time. I, I'm, I've never been as big a fan of the Daleks, but I think it's because I didn't grow up with Doctor Who. I discovered new who and love new who and i'm like i appreciate what classic who was but it's not my thing and i feel like the daleks it's like you can never change the daleks because everyone loves everyone who grew up with who doctor who loves the daleks and i'm like they're just so they're so goofy to me that i just when they get to be like the classic version that everyone's like ah thank god that's the real dalek i'm like 
Okay, I'm I'm glad that's making you all very happy. But anyway, I I love the the Dalek outside the metal casing, who is sort of like a face hugger type thing on the back, which has that scary deep voice, um, who can manipulate people. Like again, I feel like that made a Dalek scary. And then it gets in the shell, and it's you know back to um, the Doctor. Um, but anyway, I know a lot of Doctor Who fans would think this is totally sacrilegious for me to say anything negative about the classic Daleks. Um, or Nicholas Briggs's voice, which is fine. I mean, he does a very good job of doing the classic, the classic Daleks. Yeah, and I even thought the temporary villains are really good. I loved Mister Big as the evil. Um, <laughs> wait, was he in the season eleven? Or yeah, 12? so he was in season eleven in Arachnids. Eleven, in the UK. they brought him back. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. And he's a little, he's a little toned down in this. He was this one, was. but I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, I really liked him in this one. I thought he was a good villain, and I kind of wish that he had been introduced in episode one as a, you know, on the TV, and maybe even like a through-line character where he just kind of popped up once or twice, and you're finding out what he was doing, because the the whole thing with uh, Revolution of the Daleks is it's a year later. Wouldn't it have been nice to have seen sort of him popping up in the same way that the mention of... um, John Sims Master was sort of the Saxon. You could hear Saxon, vote for Saxon throughout the entire season, but you don't really know what it is until the the, the, fin- yeah. the finale. I think that would have been, they missed a trick with that. Yeah, that would have been cool. You know, and there were some amazing episodes, you know, flight, uh, was it fight, Flight of the Jadoon? No. Fugitive. Um, Fugitive. Fugitive of the Jadoon. Amazing. Oh, okay. So, and I love the idea. I love the big, and I talked about this on my podcast. Mm-hmm. I love the big twist yeah. of her, of you know, and again, I know a lot of Doctor Who sort of purists who hate this, but I think it's a fascinating idea that there is like an endless amount of doctors. Because also it goes back to the question of Doctor Who, mm-hmm. you know, now the doctor is a mystery to herself. And I think that is totally fascinating. But again, my big problem is are the companions. And again, nothing about the uh, against the actors. It is the most underdeveloped group of companions and also i feel like with all the other doctors and companions i could go on and on about what that doctor meant to that companion and vice versa and i keep thinking with this group it reminds me of like a high school coach of a team and it's like these are your kids you've got this this you know season and you're coaching them but like i honestly felt that when ryan and graham left you could have given them a little certificate saying you have now traveled with the doctor best of luck to you you know as opposed to the other companions and doctors where the doctors it was almost unhealthy how obsessed those doctors were with their companions but i mean there was so much weight to those relationships and then when they did develop them like with yaz they're like we're going to jam a bunch of backstory about Yaz into this episode. And I do think, and I've said this last time too, I am in complete agreement politically with Chris Chibnall, but it's just still so heavy handed, you know, when he does, you know, give us his messages. And it just, it's like, I'm not an idiot, man. I get, (laughs) I can read subtlety. Like I get it, but I still, I love her. And I feel like we got to see so many, some darker moments. House on, oh, I can't remember the name of the episode. The Frankenstein episode. The Haunting of Vila de la Date. Yes. There was such a great moment. And that was a great episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was such a great moment where she said, this is not a flat team structure. This is like a pyramid, you know, with me at the very top. Like there was a moment where I saw flashes of like Capaldi mm-hmm. with her this season. That something just got triggered with her and the master and seeing Gallifrey destroyed, which I'm perfectly happy to see them destroyed again. I don't, I feel like no you know what else you can do with Gallifrey yeah I just thought that she she got even more dimensions more nuances to her doctor and I'm very sad about the idea that she might you know there's lots of rumors that this is her last season coming up again it's a truncated season because you know with Brexit and the pandemic the whole 
production's been shortened. Sure, yeah. So it bums me out that she has been. I still have problems with Chris Chib. Yeah, with Chris Chibnall, but it bums me out to think in the end she will have had fewer episodes, way fewer episodes than Capaldi, Smith, or Tennant. Um, and I obviously not the same with Eccleston, but still. Sure. Yeah. I think you just succinctly described my exact feelings on and every aspect of of the modern series. I don't like the um, procedural aspect of it. I think when you have that many companions, it really needs to be focused on the relationships that everyone has. But what they did is they give three companions, and then the it feels like the show just came up with X number of guest stars to pair those companions with rather than developing their characters. I mean, like, I understand their relationship with one another, but not their relationship with the Doctor. Yeah. Um, yes. Season season 11 really felt like the Graham show more than the Doctor show. But, you know, I was going to say, that what also drives me crazy is that they will add so many extra characters. Like, you know, the one with Tesla and Edison, and then it was like, I think it was Tesla's assistant, and it was like, so you have like six people running around with her, and then with the Mary Shelley episode, you have like, 20 people I felt like are running around that house it was just it, it was just too much I have not watched much Doctor Who during the pandemic so just the episodes that aired once the actual shutdown occurred I watched the uh, a couple of them to do reviews for podcasts but I have not watched Doctor Who for fun I, I, I couldn't tell you why but I just it just is not something that I was like you know I feel like watching something light and fun and it hasn't been Doctor Who I've gone back once or twice and it's been Matt Smith episodes um, Interesting. just for the fun of it. So I have had, I, I have gone back to watch Jodie Whittaker for fun. Um, mm-hmm. I love Spyfall, the two, the mm-hmm. two parter, totally fun. The Jadoon one, um, even some of the, even the last one is depressing as the, um, you know, as depressing as some of, as the uh, cyber time lords are um oh yeah as gross as that is uh, or, or just <laughs> d- the way they're defiled i don't know i've 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 actually have gone back to it because i love her so much um mm-hmm. i have actually found myself enjoying capaldi more mm-hmm. weirdly enough i think maybe just because of the pandemic i've been drawn towards capaldi and the thing i love about about capaldi like i i rarely laughed out loud watching matt smith because i always felt like the the show was 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 telling me all the time how hilarious he was and it got mm-hmm. the shit got tiring but capaldi makes me bur- like i burst out laughing so many times because i never see the joke coming right. and he's so dry about it like i just will do like a spit take laugh cuz i just never expect the 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 joke to come so that that i've actually i've discovered i still think his first season was a mess and yeah. and he and and clara and, and um Jenna Coleman, they just could not figure out what the hell their chemistry was, why these two characters were together. I hated, I, there's just so much I hated about that first season, his first season. Um, his suddenly hating soldiers in war, like out of nowhere, um, becoming a central conflict of the whole, uh, anyway, but his second and third season were, were um, there's some great episodes that have had so much fun. Weirdly enough, he's the one that I, I'm drawn to these days. And I didn't necessarily um, love him in the first time around. He was fine, but I mean, it's weird that these days I'm like, oh, I'm in the mood for another Capaldi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe it's just because things don't affect him. You know, he Capaldi has a this shield <laughs> around him that kind of things bounce off uh, until they actually get through and then it really cuts deep. Hmm. There's some really good episodes. I think Jamie Matheson really 
served that show well. I I still, if I'm going back to a Capaldi episode, it's going to be either a Jamie Matheson written episode or a Rachel Talalay directed episode because both of those folks can can do no wrong, even though, and this is no fault of Rachel's, uh, I'm not a fan of almost any of Capaldi's finales, and which almost all involve Cybermen. <laughs> um, I just, there's there's always some element to the story that just makes me go, nope. I, I can see where you were going with that, but with the exception, Hellbent and Heaven Sent are gorgeous, and, and, and I think Heaven Sent is, is an outlier as far as Doctor Who is concerned, but is really one of the best episodes of television I've ever seen. Fun stuff. I agree with I, you. That's I, interesting about his, his, his um, finales. But they, this is a lot of the problems I have just with Moffat in general, but, mm-hmm. you know, his writing. Um, before I let you go, uh, real quick, did you get a chance to go back and listen to any big finish with Colin Baker? Uh, we we had talked about this in the last one, and you said you hadn't done so, and I'm just kind of curious to see if you got a chance. Oh, did you recommend Colin Baker? We did, I yeah. I forgot that. Um, I totally forgot that. Um, it's funny because I listened to some... I was... I, I I mean, I just keep listening to Tenet, but um, the <laughs> Tenant, he, he and... Um, Alex Kingston did that series because, uh, you know, River Song and the Tenth Doctor barely, you know, only interacted those two episodes. They just did a three part or three episode, you know, big finish thing together. Their chemistry was so freaking fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. Listen to that one. It's so good. And also, too, like, because, you know, he's such a kind of swashbuckling doctor um, mm-hmm. that it really, it brings out that side in her as well. And you think of how much fun it would have been to, and also to, because of the, the, the where it's placed in the timeline, he can't actually learn that much about her because, you know, he can't know anything more about her than, than Matt Smith does the first time he sees her. So, right. uh, so he continue, continuously doesn't know who, what the hell she is or who she is. But they ended up squeezing Peter Davidson in there and he sounds so ancient that it was just kind of like, oy vey. It was like, oh my God, is that him? <laughs> it was like cringeworthy. Like he has a little cameo in there. Because um, I don't feel the way about Sylvester McCoy. I was telling you, I've actually enjoyed listening to some of the Sylvester McCoy um, ones because the special effects were so bad during his era that now I'm able to imagine him with modern special effects and right. I enjoy it a I lot get more. It. But I completely forgot you recommended Colin Baker. The River Song, Diary of River Song series, I think series two of that, there's an episode where she teams up with Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy's doctor mm. with some interesting results, I will say. Um, I go listen to And, and uh, yeah, it's really, I mean, I think Alex Kingston's brilliant. I think River Song's a brilliant character, um, minus the she was created to deal with the doctor. Like, her whole life circles around the doctor. The Diary of River Song's great because... There are adventures that have nothing to do with the Doctor. You can see what she's doing when uh, she's not working with codename Damsel. And yeah, with great results. And I think I really, Colin Baker audio dramas are so good because he, there's a life to his character hmm. that isn't there in the TV show and they have better companions for him. And uh, there's there's a, a really good witty repartee that goes back and forth with him. But yeah, I... Those are comfort listening. I've listened to more Big Finish than I've watched episodes um, this this season. Well, great. Uh, well, no, we didn't talk too much, though, about Revolution of the Daleks, though. 
the actual we didn't episode. so let's let's briefly talk about revolution of the daleks what'd you think i mean well you talked about what you liked about it and i and i think the things that you liked in revo resolution the dalek redesign are the parts that i liked the most in that and revolution but what do you think about the story for this for this new one overall liked it um again similar problems it was just the messaging was way too heavy-handed. It's like, you know, I get it. There are some great Doctor moments, wonderful Jodie Whittaker moments. The way that she tricked the Daleks, I thought was brilliant. That shot was gorgeous, um, where all the Daleks are sh- shoving, you know, flying into that TARDIS. But again, there was so much unnecessary exposition that about like connecting that first doll or the uh, resolution of the Daleks to this one. Totally unnecessary. I'm just like, all those scenes, all those behind the scenes stuff of how they got to where they got to. It's like, I, I why couldn't those scenes have been spent with the companions and the doctor? Mm-hmm. It just felt like such a wasted opportunity, especially if you're getting to say goodbye to Ram and Ryan. Ram and Ryan. <laughs> Graham and Ryan. Yeah, agreed. Well, there's that scene really early on in the episode where the truck driver, mm-hmm. they're asking about the truck driver's mother and we get this slow pan on the mother on his dashboard. Yes. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. How, how is that going to... Oh, no, it doesn't come back. He's gone, and we never deal with that. And I was like, it's just an interesting, weird choice for a script to have included that uh, to begin with. I mean, maybe it, maybe it came back, but I can't see how it would have considering... The character doesn't stick around, and they and already. Ex- things- Sorry, I was say they already explain it later anyway. In terms of yeah. how how they came across this little scrap of Dalek DNA, it's weird. No, I I agree. I think the the Daleks don't do anything for me, and when you get a story like Dalek that Rob Sherman did in you know season one mm-hmm. or series one, where the Dalek is so impressive, and then you get these Daleks in in both of the New Year specials who are so impressive individually and have all these new powers, and suddenly like the Daleks are back doing what the Daleks do best, which is conniving and undercutting people and, and, and manipulating the situation. And then you just turn them into little blobs and tanks. It's, it's very boring, but the way that she got rid of them rushing into the, the thing is so very Doctor Who. It's so clever and it's so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Yeah, and the other thing I, I do, one thing I do appreciate, it's funny because Chibnall loves the Russell T. Davies era, although I don't think he... Sometimes I'm not sure he entirely understands what made those shows so good. Um, right. Because he, he he also wrote on Torchwood, is, is, uh, the way he writes Captain Jack is perfect. Like, it feels so spot on. And I always it always bothers me when characters come back and it doesn't quite feel like them anymore. And that I, I, I think that's what was so enjoyable, besides the fact that, you know, John Barrowman's awesome. But, um, you know, and he's been, like, dying to get back on that show forever and has been, like, no secret about that whatsoever. Uh, with both of his appearances, I loved how, how spot on and how much it just felt like Jack, you know, which was mm-hmm. great. Agreed. Yeah, I feel like there's something about the Doctor Who fans who grew up with the show where they just, they, they I don't know, like I, I've seen them, they got really annoyed when when the Dalek made that makeshift, like Dalek uh, casing in the first episode of Resolution of the Dalek because it didn't, they thought it looked too skinny. And then this redesign, they all hate the redesign. And then finally, when we saw the classic modern Daleks, they're like, oh, thank God. We, we, we only want the Daleks like this. And I'm just like, I don't know, maybe because I, I didn't really grow up with the show. I mean, it was on when right. I was a kid, but I, I had the worst taste in television anyway as a kid. But thank you again for, for coming and chatting with us. It's yeah. really nice to to have you back on the show. You know, we were we originally was going to be like, let's do it 
every Christmas time. I know. And, you know, now we're doing it every year and a half to two years, but it's fine. It's, uh, it's fun know. for me. I mean, Jesus, I love to yeah. geek out about this stuff. Oh, I know. I know. And it's, it's fun to talk with someone who is as enthusiastic about it as we are. So <laughs> thank you once again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. This was fun. Different, yeah. but fun. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, well, Brent, when we first started this podcast 52 episodes ago, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we didn't think we would be talking 52 episodes later, um, but it, it worked out thanks in no part to our amazing guests and, and our fans who have supported us and, of course, just working with each other. And I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this again in another uh, 52 episodes. Oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a lot of fun so far and, um, thanks to you and, and our guests and our great listeners out there who are hopefully listening right now. (laughs) (laughs) And and to those listeners, thank you for joining us on who and company, who and company come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at who and company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash Pixel Who. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. The gun is good. The gun is good. The penis is evil. This is the problem with free speech. Would you cut that thing, please? He's the kind of phony in politics who wears a wig. Did you just turn the damn thing off?